Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have Candace Taylor uh, joining us from Taylor Made Culture. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay. So tell me a, a little bit about your background. Well, I'm a cultural documentarian. I've been working on a project based on the Green Book since 2013, um, but I've been documenting subcultures throughout the United States for the last 20 years. Um, I do photography. I do, um, I've written a few books, and um, I've developed a digital interactive map that i worked with National Geographic on, so I do a lot of different things. <laughs> I, 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 when I was perusing your website for, um, for preparing for this, I was, I was interested in the, in the counterculture about the, the diner waitresses and, and your hair project, so I'm, I'm going to be, I think I'm going to be diving into, into your subcultures. <laughs> good, good. So, tell me a little bit about um, tailor-made culture. Well, I started the company when I got out of grad school. I went to grad school at the California College of Arts in San Francisco. And I started the company basically because I really thought, you know, again, I'm, I'm a black woman. I've been um, traveling so much. I was, you know, labeled as, as a travel writer, but it really didn't explain what I was doing because I was really looking at all these different disciplines. I, my projects are very interdisciplinary. I did a project called By the Horns with um, female bullfighters, and I thought, wow, I really need film for this. When I did counterculture, I thought, you know, photography is the way to capture this subculture. And with Overground Railroad, my latest uh, project, I, you know, it really delves into so many different things. So there's a mapping project, and then there's a book, and there's an exhibition that's traveling the U.S. with the Smithsonian. So um, tailor-made culture was just a way to have an umbrella of all of these different disciplines and things that I wanted to do with these different projects. And, um, yeah, it's a business that, you know, I've had for, gosh, since 2002. So, my God, that'll be 20 years next year. Uh, almost, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, um, I, I feel I, I, I feel like it would be very interesting work because you get to kind of delve into multiple, like what, what's interesting to you at, at the time. <laughs> well, what's going to tell the best story? Yeah. Because, you know, my, my yeah. graduate degree was in visual criticism, which is a really kind of fancy, you know, liberal arts degree. But really what it did was it taught me how to think and it taught me how to understand concepts 
in ways that were more powerful than just the the actual product, right? So all the thinking that goes in before you actually take the shot, before you decide you're going to take a photograph versus do an oral history interview or, you know, all of those yes. decisions that are made, um, I think for a lot of artists especially, um, are kind of predetermined because you train yourself in that discipline and then that's what you do. Whereas my work is project-led. It's like, what does a project need to tell the entire story? And then I learn the technology as needed to or support that, you know, yeah. hire yeah. people that, that, if I need to. Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, I and uh, so when we reached out to you, we were we were reaching out about your project, the Over Overground Railroad. Um, so, it's I, for our listeners that might not under might not know what what is the Green Book or what what was the Green Book? The Green Book was a travel guide that was published for Black people during the Jim Crow era. It was published in the 1930s to the 1960s, and it was critical because during that time, Black people were generally were legally shut out of um, most white-owned establishments. And it was very unclear um, and in many cases dangerous to just venture out, um, especially during travel or on a road trip, without a plan. And a lot of people carried the Green Book with them because it showed them where they could go. Uh, The Green Book was, you know, you can say it was a travel guide, but it was so much more because it didn't just have food and lodging like a AAA guide, for instance, it had pretty much every kind of black-owned business that you could imagine, and there were white-owned establishments in the Green Book as well in later editions. But there were liquor stores and drug stores um, and haberdashers and sanitariums and department stores. I mean, there was just anything you might need on the road, nightclubs and, you know, lots of entertaining entertainment venues. Um, but it was a really incredible um, tool and I, you know it was a life-saving tool I one thing that when I was reading was reading the book that I thought was very interesting that I had never realized was that some of the not necessarily oh, excuse me not necessarily social oh, excuse me oh, not necessarily social um, um, stances or that's not the right word but that like even like promoting um historically black colleges to the GIs returning from World War II there were there was a there was a social justice um aspect to it that wasn't necessarily overt but it was it was there and I I I had never realized that that was a part of it yeah it was a real you know and some of those things like HBCUs that were listed um in the 40s, 1946 and 1947 edition, because it was after the war, the Green Book had taken a hiatus. It wasn't published during that entire time because during World War II, it had to stop publication um, from 42 to 45. But, um, right. but it was a really, you know, it, it was of the moment. I think that's why it's so great to look at the Green Books now. You can look through them. Um, the Schomburg Center has them all digitized. Most of them, uh, I think there's 24 editions on their site now. And if you Google NYPL Green Book, they'll come up. But you can really kind of flip through them and you can see there were articles, you know, for featured different cities and how those cities were depicted during that time. You know, there's some parallels. There's some things that haven't changed. Um, So it's a real snapshot uh, into black culture and identity um, during those 
those years of Jim Crow. Yes. So, and um, tell me about the the Green Book's creator, uh, Victor Green. Yes, Victor Green. You know, I compare him to like the Steve Jobs for black folks. Um, <laughs> Because he really was an incredible man. He had a seventh grade education, um, no business degree, mind you, right? I mean, he didn't even graduate, didn't even go to high school. Um, But he managed to build this incredible, um, incredibly important uh, publication. And And not to say that there weren't other, there were other black traveler guides. The Green Book wasn't the only one. Um, but the Green Book was the most popular and it reached the most people. And what he was able to do that was so brilliant was develop these really strategic partnerships early on with um, people like SO Gas Stations. They had hired two black marketing executives um, to run this division of the business. And so Green Books were at every SO Gas Station um, you know, by the 1960s. About 2 million people were using the Green Book. Um, Victor Green was also a, uh, a postal worker, and he lived in Harlem. And, you know, it was one of those things where he was just solving a problem uh, that he had in Harlem because half the right. places on 125th Street were, uh, didn't allow black people in there. So he thought, well, you know, we kind of need a guide to figure out, you know, where we can go even in our neighborhood. So... Harlem was the first edition, um, and then by 1937, there was sites in upstate New York and some in, couple in New Jersey, but it was a very local, you know, guide. But I think, and I compare him to Steve Jobs in the sense that, you know, I don't think he realized when he made that guide and he put golf courses and things like that in the Green Book that brought black people into what was mostly white spaces in a right. way that was you know, really innovative and exciting and new. Um, And he also brought all of these black-owned businesses a lot of business. You know, if you were going through a town, if you saw that there were a bunch of Green Book sites on Auburn Avenue in Atlanta, for instance, then it was a nexus of black culture and, you know, everything that was happening in these vibrant communities um, was really special. So I think it was an incredibly powerful networking tool. And I'm sure when Steve Jobs put a camera in in his phone, you know, he didn't live to see this, but it became a new civil rights era tool, right? Right. Um, and how powerful yeah. the camera has been in really having us um, reengage its history and hopefully in a way that um, that will be, you know, more powerful um, and lasting. But yeah, yeah my, I, I just yeah. I think he was an incredible businessman. I, I agree, and I the um, the other thing that I thought was really powerful is even in the even in the early editions there was a social movement to you know patronize the the black owned businesses because why should you patronize you know businesses that will not hire you or you know you're that you know to to give economic support to the community, and I thought that that was really probably pretty radical at that time. Yes, there was a big movement yeah. going on in in uh, yeah. every major city where you know yeah. if and it made obviously it made sense, but I think he he knew that all of these things were happening, and he had his you know again he was solving his own problem, 
but it became right. such a universal um, tool that did more than I think than what he set out to do. And I think in some ways that's how, you know, technology works, right? Sometimes it sets out to do things that we don't want it to do. But the Green Book was, you know, you know it's a double-edged sword. But, but I think the Green Book um, grew beyond uh, anything he could have imagined. But he was still a very – he was a dapper man. He was like six feet tall. He was incredibly handsome. He and Alma Duke Green, his wife, were a team, and I can't, you know – you can't talk about the Green Book and not give Alma a tremendous amount of credit because I think she was a big reason why he was so successful. He was still working as a postal worker full time, right? Um, you know, throughout most of the life of the Green Book. So, and then he dies in 1960, so he didn't even live to see the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Um, and Alma, his wife, took it over, and she became the publisher and the editor for a little bit, and then she passed the tomb over to uh, Langley Waller, who published it to 1967. So, you know, it's a real, it's an incredible, um, I think, story about resilience and, and black entrepreneurship that, you know, we, we don't hear much about. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I had... Um, um, I had read a book, um, maybe year or so ago, the history of black business in America. And I had, I didn't, you know, there, there was so much in there that I, I was not aware of. And I had actually just picked it up because there was a reference to um, Lancaster County in it. And so, and I, I was studying, um, I was studying slavery in Lancaster County and the sites associated with that. And, and that was that the reason that that was the reason I picked it up, but I ended up reading the entire book because it's so much of the story that we don't get. So I, I think it's very important to, to tell, to tell the stories, you know, that aren't, aren't told so that we, it becomes more part of our, our collective history. Exactly. Yeah. So, yes. Exactly. Um, what, uh, so is that, was that kind of your, your reason for wanting to document the Green Book sites or, what was, why did you decide well, to Well, you know, the, the reason why I got into it was because I was commissioned to write a book on Route 66, and it was the first kind of book I wrote. Like, it was a, just essentially a travel guide on Route 66, mm-hmm. and I did it because I needed the money. And, um, and as soon as I started doing it, I realized, you know, it was a bad idea because the money I, it was going to cost me to produce this book was going to be more than the advance was going to offer. <laughs> yeah. And I thought this was not a smart idea. And I was cursing myself for agreeing to do it out of desperation. Um, And then I was researching Route 66, and I went to a museum show on Route 66 at the Autry Museum in Los Angeles, and there was a green book, like, tucked under glass in a corner. And I'd never seen the green book. I didn't know such a thing had ever existed. This was, like I said, about 2013. And I was so shocked and once I learned that half the counties on Route 66, there are 88 counties from Chicago to Los Angeles, half the counties on Route 66 were sundown towns, which were all white towns and they were all white on purpose. And I thought, well, then how in the world did black people travel Route 66? You know, it must have been incredibly dangerous. And, of course, the right. nostalgia factor in Route 66, it's like get your kicks on Route 66, and, you know, it's this white um, nuclear family just, you know, getting in their Airstream trailers and having a good time. And then I realized how much 
of that imagery and that time period, especially surrounded by travel, black people were just absent, you know? Right. And it's like, well, then there's a reason. But then there was this other solution. So that when I discovered the Green Book during this time, I thought, oh, this is why <laughs> – this is why I'm in this Route 66 thing, because there's a, different story. There's a much more interesting story here, yes. and this is going to be my next project. So I got the book done, and I did list some Green Book, you know, um, sites that were um, um, in that travel guide, but it wasn't really, it was about Route 66. But yeah, that was, you know, kind of one of those eureka moments, like, oh, thank you. You put me here for a reason. Yes. And, you know, I've worked on this project for what, seven, eight years. Yeah, there's a, the, um, the amount, and your, um, the amount of um, research that, that you've put into it is, is I, I'm, I, I've learned so much reading, reading the book, um, and you're out documenting the sites now, um, or, and you did also for the, for the, um, for, for the book, so you're, you're, continu- like, are you, ex- you're expanding the, the, um, is that what you're doing? Are you expanding like the the sites that you've documented? Yes, because when I you know when I first did my first round of um, I okay when I first started the project, Wikipedia said there were 1,500 Green Book sites, <laughs> but I've cataloged over 10,000 of them now. Oh my goodness! And the yeah. reason why it said 1,500 is because we only had access to two editions when oh. I first started the project. And so I got the fellowship at the Schomburg Center in New York, where they have the largest collection of green books in the, in the world. And, um, and they have, like I said, now there's 24 editions. I think when I got there, there were 23. So doing that research was really critical um, and obviously allowed me to get a, a master list, a database of sites. So after I cataloged over 10,000, and then I went to Harvard after the Schomburg to do more of the scholarly research. But then I realized I can't write this book, even though I had sold the book to Abrams and I had a book deal and I had a deadline. I knew that I had to be on the road to actually see these sites and see these communities and understand what happened to these places because there were all of these social forces that really shifted these these neighborhoods. So whether it was urban renewal or redlining or gentrification or mass incarceration today, there were all these things that were really changing the tone, the, you know, the, the safety factor. I mean, I went to, you know, a place in the south side of Chicago where 53 people had been shot the weekend I was there, oh, yeah. you know, and I guarantee, like, that was not, this neighborhood didn't look like this when it was listed no. in the Green Book, you know. And so the question became, well, why and what happened and why, you know, what do we need to do to really address this? So the book really shifted its focus a little bit, um, and, um, and I think it became a better book, but it became a much harder book to write. But in that interim, mm-hmm. I had scouted about 5,000 sites after, you know, between like Schaumburg and, Har- and Harvard and then leaving Harvard I had about eight months to write the book after that. So I scouted 5,000 sites and, um, and of those, you know, had, that had addresses, I really got a good sampling of, you know, about how many were left and how many we've lost. Um, right. But in the interim, since, since the book has come out, the other sites 
were harder to scout because a lot of them didn't have addresses. A lot of um, places in the Green Book either had the wrong address or the street names have changed. So when you do a search on Google Maps, nothing comes up. Right. So now I'm doing that deeper dive into those places and figuring out, you know, which ones I can find. There's still a lot that um, that I haven't, but yeah. So right now I'm on a about five month trip. I'll be probably on the road through the fall, through November maybe. I don't know when I'm going back to New York, but um, <laughs> so finishing up that field research to do a mobile app. Um, so that's okay. the next project that's in the yeah. works because a mobile app will be really a great way for people to experience, you know, sites that are near their home. It's not just yeah. going to be green book sites. There'll be everything tracing um, black social mobility over the last century. So there'll be lynching sites. There'll be sites that are, you know, with current black owned businesses. There'll be sites that have, um, uh, sundown towns. You know, you, if you're taking a road trip, it'll pop up and say, oh, you, you're entering what was a former sundown town, you know? Yes, so yeah. that's uh, really that's, what that's, that's a really great way to tie, you know, history to, to now. I, I think that's a, that's a really, really great way to kind of change the narrative and, and change the way people people look at things. I, mean, I was, my dad's family is from Oregon and <clears throat> probably, I don't know, less than 10 years ago, we were chatting at dinner one night and he's like, well, you know that there were no black people allowed in Oregon. You know, that's yeah, the, the when the state, state was, of Oregon was, yeah, the whole state. Now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I said, <laughs> that's no, that's not possible. <laughs> yep. like, it was. It was then, like yep. we're pulling out our phones and Googling, but I, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> yep. Oregon so, yeah. was the only state in the country that the entire state was a sundown down. Yeah. Yeah. It, that, that was just crazy to me. <laughs> um, and, and, and the only, the only person that got prosecuted under it was a, 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 a man that was more, um, more, um, successful than his neighbor so his neighbor you know of course turned him in but pretty consistent with yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh tell me about um this you kind of touched on a little bit but about the storytelling of the of the over overground railroad i, I know you've mentioned the the traveling smithsonian exhibit um, you have a children's book plan, a board game, the mobile app. Like, are, tell me about how you're integrating that whole storytelling. Well, you know, the actually the young adult version is coming out. The it'll be out in January of twenty twenty two, so it'll be out next January. And I think you know that really does allow for this younger audience at a time when, you know, we saw the George Floyd protests and you see, you know, families coming out to protest. And I think it's a really incredible opportunity to reach a group of people in there, you know, for ages 12 and up. So it's that time when you do feel more awkward and you're more self-conscious and, you know, and you judge people and people judge you (laughs) and you realize, you know, there's a whole other way of being, how you walk in the world. And I think to introduce the history of, you know, our story in terms of this, you know, American story about race, um, culture, and identity, um, because the Green Book is very empowering. It's not just a story about loss and pain. 
and tragedy. It's really a story about resilience and yes. entrepreneurship in spite of all of that. And yes. so I think it can be a really incredible um, opportunity to maybe have Victor Green be a role model in some ways. Like what, you know, there are similar things, there are similar, simple solutions to problems that we may have that could trigger another, you know, incredibly, um, you know, significant statement in how we move this ball forward. And the, the book is really addressing that, you know, the book talks about the pendulum of justice that, you know, it's never when people say, oh, it's 2021, we shouldn't be doing this now. Like we're just supposed to be getting better as we, you know, as time moves on. Right. And that's never been the case. And so the book really shows where the pendulum of justice swung forward and when it swung back. And that is our history. You know, we've moved forward, you know, Barack Obama, Trump, you know, it's like, right. it's a real, yeah. it, that is what we do. And I think yeah. understanding it from that perspective you know, me and, you know, my uh, my stepdad, Ron, who I write about in the book, is a narrative thread. You know, he was not, we were not surprised when Trump won. Um, right. Because of, you know, that's how history is, that's what we've, we've learned in history. So I hope that, you know, all of these different um, projects, whether it's the exhibition where you get to actually see these huge, you know, life-size photographs of these black people living their best lives and, you get to learn, you know, about the history of, and you get to see some of the objects where these, you know, that like a huge, beautiful cash register that was um, in one of the longest standing and um, most prominent um, uh, filling stations that was black owned uh, on Route 66. You know, you get to go and you see these objects and you can get a tangible narrative to this history that's really critical. Um, but I think every project, whether it's the book or the, you know, the young adult book or the mobile app, there's so many different ways people use, um, people understand history and learn history. So it really is to reach everyone um, where they're at and, uh, and allow, um, allow you to you know, add layers to um, how you want to experience it. Yeah, I, I I think that that's really um, I think that's really smart because yeah, people people consume information differently. So and and then you know if if somebody's really enjoys reading or you know the app can give them some more information. You know, it's very I think that that's really a, a smart approach to be able to reach as many people and then you know being able to actually go and see physical. Um, Physical things from from the the green book for the exhibit is is another way to really make it um, make it real. So I I think that's really really smart. Um, I you mentioned your your stepfather and when I was reading your introduction and you were talking about you know him him being you know on vacation as a as a child with his family and the the chauffeur's hat as a prop. Um, you know, I, I was, I, and I, I do tend to live in my own little world, but I was probably in my 30s um, before I realized that, like, everybody didn't get the same lessons that I did from my mother's family. <laughs> <laughs> like the the like like the like the make sure that you have your receipt when you're at the store. You know, don't go back into the store with your bag. Like I didn't realize that the whole world didn't get those lessons, mm -hmm. and so you know, 
because and and I and, you know and I do I do tend to live in my own world and then I'm like having this revelation of like oh yeah, that was that was because you know they were and and my mother's family is very um that my grandmother's generation was almost all college educated even the women like they were very um upper upper middle class but they still you know felt the need to teach those lessons and mm-hmm. um and so yeah I I I I thought that that was really an important um, lesson in your book to to teach people that maybe haven't had that exposure or, or you know that revelation. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and it was interesting yeah. with you know Ron because my stepdad he really does become a narrative thread, but that's not how the book was really supposed to be written. It was kind of by accident that he became such a prominent figure in the book um, because he died literally the week. I started writing the book uh-huh. and um, but during the time when I was doing all that field research, we would talk on the phone. I'd be driving in the car and he, he loved to talk. He could talk for hours and he was a Southern man. He grew up in Memphis, you know, it's from Memphis, Tennessee mm-hmm. and dark skinned man, large man, a, um, Marine, you know, he's a huge teddy bear to us, but he can <laughs> Yeah. come off as being really, I mean, he intimidated every boyfriend I ever had and um, <laughs> not, you know, meaning to, but he just, he had that alpha male right. presence and, yeah. um, and he was so male, you know, and I'm, and I was just thought he just had a little too much testosterone. I just didn't get it. Like I, we were never really that close. Like he was my stepdad since I was 12, but we were never really, really close. Like I was much closer to my mom, yeah. but you know, it, it became once I started working on this project, um, he started just sharing these really intimate stories with me about growing up in the South um, as a black man, you know, in the Jim Crow South. And he told me things I'd never heard before and things I was reading in the archives. You know, I'd read, oh, there's people who used to travel with chauffeur's hat and chauffeur's coats because if they were upper middle class they and they were driving a nicer car, it was just better as a ruse to say this wasn't your car this was the chauffeur's you know um that you were chauffeur and and it was more believable it fit it fit into the it fit into the narrative of the person you're talking to (laughs) yeah and it could save your life because if you did have a nicer car than a police officer could afford you know the ramifications um of that could be deadly because again i mean we see you know what's happening with tulsa Oklahoma, finally, that story, the Greenwood narrative is coming out because essentially in a Jim Crow system, black folks are not supposed to have more than white folks. And so, yeah, that happened to me. I was telling Ron, you know, in the kitchen, I was like, do you know, did you hear about the chauffeur's hat thing? And this story tumbles out of his mouth about, yeah, he was age seven, taking vacation with his parents. They were driving across the border. Um, Sheriff pulled him over. And his father, you know, turned to him and said, don't say a word. And Ron didn't know what was going on. He's sitting in the back right. seat. And uh, the sheriff, you know, first question he asked, whose car is this? You know, where where are you going and who are these people with you? And his father turned to his, um, I'm sorry, do you hear the barking? Oh, it's okay. <laughs> oh, God, my girls sorry. are being quiet. So. <laughs> I'm at my sister's house in Ohio and uh, uh, I'm sorry but um, his uh, his 
father turns to his wife and pretends he doesn't know her and says, yeah. you know, she's the maid. You know, I'm a chauffeur. She's the maid. I'm driving them home. That's her son in the back. And, um, and they, you know, the officer said, all right, you know, go on. But Ron didn't understand, you know, the, the um, sheriff said, well, where's your hat? And he said, it's hanging right in the back, officer. And it was, there was always this black chauffeur's cap hanging in the back. Ron just thought it was a hat. He didn't know what it was. It was always hanging right. there. He never saw anybody wear it. And he said after that day, he saw it in nearly every black man's car he rode in, you know. And so there were stories like that that really became critically um, important in the storytelling of the book, but also in, um, in understanding, you know, why even within my own family, you know, and a man who I'd known all of my adult life and most of my life, um, put, he was, it was like until he trusted me with these stories, when he saw I was really engaged in this material and doing this book, I think he trusted me. He could tell me these stories. And so his stories become kind of a narrative thread yes. throughout the book. But that became, you know, that only happened because when he died um, and I was just writing the book and I was sitting there like crying every morning because <laughs> I was thinking, uh-huh. I know I'm supposed to be writing the book, but yeah. all I can do, I just don't want to forget Ron's stories. And I called my agent and I said, you know, okay, I know I'm supposed to be writing the book, but I'm, uh, I'm just writing his stories. I'm going to open the book with him sitting in the backseat of the, you know, car with the chauffeur's hat. And she just said, keep going. Um, so it was, you know, it worked out. But it's, you know, I guess you couldn't plan those things. But, yeah, he, he no, no. has become a real star. A lot of people love um, talking about Ron. And so it, it's kind of an homage. It brings, you know, it's, it's special um, that he was able to be a part of it in this way. Yeah, and and I think it it really um, connects and and humanizes the story too. It's not just it's not just something that happened a long time ago, you know. And I think that sometimes that's how people view history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah I, I I thought that it was very a very effective storytelling tool, and I'm I'm glad that you were able to to get those stories and make that connection because as I was reading it, I was thinking. Uh, my my grandmother died oh, ten years ago or so, and I was thinking I really wish that I would have been able to um, you know talk to her about this and ask her about it because she would have she would have definitely had you know memories. Mm, um, yeah. But I don't know. I also don't know if she would have acknowledged it because she was kind of she was kind of funny. We she had the whole family together uh, in Omaha uh, the Thanksgiving before uh, before she passed, and one of my uh, one of my uh, cousins was trying to ask her about the segregation in Omaha and the the schools not being open to them because they went to integrated schools because there just weren't enough schools you know for every you know because the mm-hmm. the population just wasn't that big. But she she would not even acknowledge that the pools weren't integrated. She just said that they didn't want to go to the pool. And I was thinking that that was right. her, her. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so some, of, some of those stories do a get lost. A lot of black women did that. They would tell their kids yeah. too, you know, oh, you know, their, their soda over there is flat. We have better soda at home or something yeah. you know, like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could, I could see that. <laughs> so, so, um, so you talked a little bit about it, but, but tell me about how you were, you kind of connected in the, in, in, in the book, um, today's society to, to the Green Book story. 
Yeah, I think it's important to, like I said, not just contextual, to, to talk about the Green Book as a, you know, historic time capsule, I think is a huge um, uh, disservice to really the impact of what it stood for and, and really what it can teach us now. Because to me, um, it wasn't, like I said, just black-owned businesses that were in the Green Book. You can see how it shifts through time and in the later editions in the 60s when the writing is on the wall. Like, you know, after Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, people are, you know, those white-owned businesses that wanted to integrate just because money is money, right. you know, they thought, well, more black, more people, regardless of the race, more money. Um, they were getting clearance on, like, that, that the, you know, people were, this was going to happen at some point. And then it was critical, I think, for people knowing that before the passage of the Civil Rights Act, um, all of these businesses that were so vibrant and all of these black plate, you know, black um, owned businesses that were doing so well because of the segregation. Uh, the, the, there's a chapter in the book called, you know, integration is a double-edged sword. Um, right. Because, and Ron even said, you know, integration was the worst thing that happened to us, ironically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. like we got what we wanted, but we lost what we had. And so what happens in the 60s when the Green Book ceases publication by 60, the last edition is a double-year edition, 1966-67, is the last edition. But after that, a lot of these, iconic places like the Dewdrop in New Orleans and um, the Hampton House in Miami um, just become, you know, they just, they're abandoned because black folks all of a sudden can go to the French Quarter. They could never do that before. So they stop right. going to the Dewdrop in, in New Orleans and the Dewdrop falls to the shambles. And you see that with all the, the iconic places that were so popular um, that were black-owned, they lose all their business, and then, you know, they become derelicts of, of what they once were. And um, and then you see things like Nixon, you know, right after, on the heels of that, like, this, you know, Vietnam War, you see all these black soldiers, all soldiers of all races coming back addicted to heroin. And yet right. he, you know, has a war on drugs initiative that targets those black communities where these Green Book sites were. And so then you see the effects, the very early effects of mass incarceration happening. Um, you see redlining, the effects of, you know, the fact that black people are still redlined in their communities. Um, they can't, once that starts to shift and people can start leaving the black communities, those with means do leave. And so then you right. have this kind of hyper, you know, impoverished, um, segregated black community that creates the, you know, introduction of the, you know, housing initiatives that you've got, you know, the isolation and, um, and decisions that were made about how to house poor people, white and black. So you've got the right. beginning of, you know, ghettos and, and everything. It's, it's just a real, as you and then the not yeah. yeah from that period the on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the, the, the not putting money, not putting money in the in the education. You know, the whole the whole community suffered. Yeah, yeah. So there were all these strategic decisions, largely made by governmental forces, um, right. that really shifted the way these communities operated. 
what was happening, and it, it really explains why when you drive through certain towns that, you know, had a huge Green Book presence, that were once these vibrant, self-sustaining communities, say like Green, the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, and you see what's happened today, and it's not, it's not by accident. Um, you right. know, there were the intentional uh, decisions that were made and devastating results. Um, so I think it's really important, you know, that we look at the history through this lens, that we understand that um, how much of a part we play as, as citizens, even today. Um, there's a part in the book, you know, it's what you can do. It's very short and it's not comprehensive at all. But just some of the key elements of, you know, maybe your 401K is supporting the prison industrial complex. It probably is. So right. you can go out and, you know, march against you know, what happened yeah. to George Floyd, yeah. but you may be facilitating it and funding it, right? right? Yeah. So we have to, you know, I think realize that regardless of who we are, you know, as black citizens, um, we may inadvertently be participating in a system that is um, helping to, you know, destroy us. Yeah, to perpetuate. Yeah. I think the Green Book is a great tool to look at that history. Yeah, I, I agree. And I was, I was, I mean, I, I, I thought it was very interesting, even in the um, the early editions when you're talking about the building the the um, underpasses low so the buses can't get through to to get to the free recreational sites. Like, gov- yeah, government decisions being made to 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 segregate. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I I I think that 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 does continue and and um, maybe in less. Um, less explicit ways, but definitely in policy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And yeah. we are all a part of this system, for better or for worse. Right. So and we all have the power to participate in it or change it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that this idea that we can't be active in creating that change, you know, has been the biggest, um, you know, it's almost like a, it's almost like we've been duped into believing that this is just how things have always been and they haven't, they really haven't. Right. So, yeah. You know, and I think people are inspired to actually to do something. So hopefully the book, you know, will, will do that. Yes. Yes. I, I, I did um, very much enjoy it and I enjoyed that, that making that connection too, because I, I, I don't think I had ever looked at it that way. So it gave me a different perspective. So I, I, I really appreciate you, you adding that. Um, so uh, tell me, do you uh, tell me about um, if, if the interest, if there's any like specifically interesting uh, Green Book sites that you've documented? Oh my God, it's like picking your favorite children. You know, <laughs> I don't have children, but it's really hard because there's so many, and then there's some that yes. you know, I discover that I'm that I'm also in love with it, you know, but the, the biggest, um, you know, I think some of the ones that uh, are in, there's a site toward the end of the book um, that really allows people to go and see different sites. And I think, you know, the Hampton house is really special um, because it's in Miami. Um, it underwent like a nearly a $10 million renovation. Um, but it was a place where King practiced his, I have a dream speech. Okay. It's where, you know, um, Malcolm X, you know, um, was uh, proselytized uh, Cassius Clay into Muhammad Ali. 
apparently the story goes he walked in as yeah. Cassius Clay and left as Muhammad Ali. Um, it was just a really, and it was a beautiful, there was a big pool and, you know, there was, um, it was the creme de la creme of, you know, of black culture and there was a maitre d' who had a gold lame suit on and there's just some really beautiful photographs um, that I couldn't get licensed for the book. There was one that I had to, I got from Getty, but, um, but if you Google that, you know, the Hampton house too, you'll see a lot of material come up. So that's, that's a really special site um, just because it was a piece of our history and it sat in shambles and we almost lost it. And it was just through the preservation efforts of a woman named Enid Pinckney who was probably, I think in her seventies when she started this, you know, to save it because she remembered it from when she was young. And Uh, I think she's in her 80s now, but she, it was just this one woman, you know, just force um, that she was able to spearhead this restoration. Um, And so that to me is a great one. And then the other favorite Green Book site that's no longer around, but that was so critical was uh, Murray's Dude Ranch. Um, There was, it was called a Negro Dude Ranch. um, And it was fabulous. Um, Pearl Bailey bought it in the uh, 50s, but it was owned by um, um, the Murrays, uh, a couple. And everybody, Joe Lewis and his entourage would come, and Life Magazine did a feature on it, and Ebony Magazine did a feature on it. And it was just a place where it was in the Mojave Desert um, on about 40 acres uh, where black folks could ride horses and uh, live on a dude ranch. It also was one of the first places where young um, black and white children swam together in that part of the country and outside of Victorville, California. So that's just, and again, if you Google that, there's just so many great photographs of um, people, uh, black folks, you know, on a dude ranch. And just, it was really special and that was listed in the Green yeah. Book. Yeah, that that, that is um I was, and I was, I, not that I guess I should be surprised, but I was really surprised that there were only 25% left in the, in the, that, of the list that, that are left like as a physical um, buildings. Right. And, and I know when the Green Book uh, movie came out a few years ago, they did a, um, the local paper here did a story on the, there were three sites listed in the 1940 edition in Lancaster, but they were all private houses. And, mm-hmm. and one one still is um, is surviving. The other the others have been demolished through urban renewal. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, urban renewal was a significant force. I would go places where there once had been twenty green book sites, and there was just a freeway there now. You know, and I saw that yeah. over and over again. Um, and yeah, I think it's important that uh, there were a lot of tourist homes in the green book, which were kind of the airbnbs of their time yes exactly (laughs) yeah we did that too so you know um yeah and i do find that um you know a lot of the commercial buildings uh there's just we keep losing them even whether it was through uh just so much you know gentrification and the way you know hospitals and schools and things that are just you know that are replacing a lot of these uh these places. So I do have a grant with the National Park Service to um, nominate Green Book sites in the National Register and oh, also rewrite cool. the context of how these places should be viewed, you know, as historically yeah. significant because, as you may know, with the National Register, it gets very complicated 
and they can get lost in, in details that don't really matter, you know, right. what the floor plans were in the 40s to whether or not a place should be considered um, right. if eligible. It's, if it's still, yeah, yeah, if it's still in the period of significance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm <clears> doing that work to hopefully make it easier to save the ones that are left. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's very, um, very important and, and making them... Um, Making them part, and I think that there is a there is a um, trend in in the preservation movement to kind of be more inclusive in our storytelling um, collectively. And I think that that's that's an, I think that that I'm I'm really glad to hear that the park service is, is working on that also because I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think they've always always done that. <clears throat> yeah, so I was great. surprised though that the that the that the Department of Interior in the 30s was was making their own travel guide. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was surprised by that. Um, so, is there anything that maybe you wanted to touch on that I that I didn't ask you or that you thought about while we were while we were talking before we before we wrap up? No. I mean, I think you know, um, if you you know if you have any other questions for me, I'm happy to answer them. But I think you okay. know, in general, um, I guess for people to if they want to follow the project or learn more about the different, um, the exhibition that's traveling, you know, to see where it's going. It's right now it um, is at Mosaic Templars Museum in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, and I'll be giving a talk there on July 15th. Let me okay. double check that. Um, but, yeah, if, they, if you want to find out more things like that, you can go to tailormadeculture.com and if you follow the Overground Railroad tab at the bottom and sign the guest list, I can put you on a, um, an updates list. And I only send out a few updates a year because I can't okay. even handle my own email. So I try to, <laughs> to be very careful. <laughs> I, I, I understand. People. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so, so um, it's sign, up for, sign up on the, on the website. And um, is there, yeah. and then oh, you'll the have the updates. Event, the speaking event is on the 17th of July. Oh, it's on the 17th. Okay. Okay, very good. And then, um, let me see. And uh, so that would, be, that would be a way for people to follow you. And, and your books are available, I'm assuming, everywhere. I know I picked my copy up at Barnes & Noble. Um, yeah. So if anybody's interested in, in buying the book, they can, they can definitely just go. Uh, to any of major bookstores, yeah. um, and, and then even on my website, the, I think there's a list of indie bookstores if people want to do that. Okay, awesome. Anyone, yeah, yeah it's a, anywhere you want. And there is an audio book available as well, so for folks who mm-hmm. you know prefer that format. Okay, very good. And um, to contact you is the website the best um, the best way if someone was interested in contacting you. Yeah, yeah, that's the okay. best way. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, I'm glad to. You know, I think. What you're doing here in terms of you know preservation, I, you know, I also have a, a grant with the National Trust, um, you know, featuring Harlem stories, Harlem Green Book stories. Oh yes. Um, and I think that uh, you know preservation is our way into basically just not just telling our history, but understanding it in the context mm-hmm. of why it's so important to save it. Um, yeah, I, I think agree. it's just really critical. And uh, so I love, you know, as much as I love the history, I really think the built environment and what we're doing mm-hmm. with these sites now and re-engaging with that 
you know, site, even if it's gone, you know, for my mobile app, I'm right. working on AR, you know, features where yeah. you can scan and see what was there. Um, you know, even though it's been quote unquote lost structurally, there's still ways to capture it in our in our yes. uh, mind's eye and um, and hopefully prevent us from just tearing down other pieces of our history and then realizing I, I agree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I wish yeah. I hadn't done that. And- yeah, yeah, and and one, yeah, once it's torn down, it's it's gone. Um, I had um, last year, and I've mentioned it several times on the podcast. I I read the um, a book called the Slavery in the Slavery in the North, and the man that wrote it was actually a, a, a psychologist, and he didn't. I don't think he realized he was writing a preservation book per se, but he was mm-hmm. talking about the places and the material culture and even just having, you know, the excavations and then having pieces that people held where, you know, the the slavery in the North was all around, but the history was erased. And Mm -hmm. once you start to realize that the buildings are still there and, you know, you start to acknowledge it, you, it's not gone anymore. And I don't, he was talking about it from like a collective memory standpoint, but you know, it was really, I thought it was really a case for preservation. And and I think, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the, the, the way that you're looking at it too. Cause if, if those sites are acknowledged and we can, we can connect with them, then we can, we, we, there's, 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 people will want to preserve them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's something yeah. that happens when you're in that site. I mean, if I had written this yeah. book, I could have written this book when I left Harvard and not done all the field research. And it probably would have still been, you know, it would have been a very different book, but it would have been a complete analysis of the green, you know, it would have accomplished right. what I said I wanted to accomplish in my book proposal. But I just, you know, I think it's it's so different when you go to a place and you stand in that space amongst those materials or you see the brick and and, you know, it just, it's a palpable, tangible experience that I don't think you can substitute for any other, um, in any other way. I, and I, you know, I, it definitely made the project much more expensive to produce. And it's, um, you know, it's, it was a choice, but I still believe it right. was the right one. Um, because I think that's how, it's like when it gets into your soul and your emotions, when you experience something, I don't think you forget that. And that's why people travel, you know, right. versus yeah. it, that experience and that memory, um, you know, it stays with you forever. So, yeah, let's keep these buildings. The experience, standing. yes, yes. Well, thank you so much. I I really um, I really enjoyed our conversation, and I appreciate I appreciate you spending this time with me this morning. I I, I really do enjoy your book, and I will be recommending it to anybody who will listen to me. <laughs> oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was an honor to be on your your podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.